You're about to hear a lovely conversation with fellow Hoffman teacher, Lisa Vanger. Lisa is passionate. She's the type of person that can't help but talk with her hands. And she was trained by Bob Hoffman himself. Now, after 30 years of being a Hoffman teacher, and for 10 of those years, she was the owner and founder of the Italian Hoffman Institute, she finds herself currently at a crossroads. And one of the greatest gifts I got from our talk was the reminder that even when we make spirit-guided visions, they can shift, change, and evolve, and especially when we face these crossroads. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. Lisa Vanger, welcome to the show. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Always nice to get a fellow Hoffman teacher on the show. So let's start there, actually. You are a Hoffman teacher. Let's go way back and start with what even led you to take the process. If I could name something, I think it was my dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with myself, my life, my work, my partner, anything. And um, it took a while to get me there because... Uh, ever since I was uh, an adolescent, I rebelled against the talk, continuous talk about psychology and Jung at home. And uh, finally, I knew I needed to do something. And my younger brother, Michael, suggested I do Hoffman. Does that mean he had already taken it? Oh, yes, he had taken it. Uh, a couple of years earlier, like this was an important year for my, for mine. It was in 1989 and I was turning 40. So it about time to do something for myself. And um, uh, Michael had done it and so had my elder brother, Christoph, and his wife. So it was almost uh, everybody or my generation had taken the process. Given that you had people in your family already take the process? Did you witness a transformation in them? Amazing. My brothers were always the rebels and I was the good girl, the invisible one, the perfect one. And um, <laughs> when I met with them, especially Michael, uh, he had changed amazingly. For starters, he had cut off his ponytail that was growing sideways. <laughs> And uh, also they called me just to say they loved me. And uh, I, I always say they didn't even ask for money, uh, which would have been more the norm before. But it was just amazing, the, the loving presence that 
they had with me. And again, especially Michael, because he was probably freer to travel. I was living in Italy then, and he lived uh, in uh, Switzerland, so it was easy to get to. And was it one of those things where you looked and, and saw the transformation and, and thought, I-, I want some of that? Well, I think it was actually not as wonderful. It was, I need to do something. Michael says it takes 10 days and it costs so and so much. And I did gulp and I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll get the money and I have the days. Let's do it. I had no idea what I was going into. I can't remember asking him any questions or uh, that he would tell me something. I just saw that his eyes had that sparkle that I didn't have anymore. And I wanted that. And did you get that from taking the process? I certainly believe so. Yes. I can feel it in my being, in my body and... And also the way people respond to me when they said, oh, wow, you have this sparkle in the eyes. Do you have, I know this was a a while ago, so this will be interesting to hear. Do you have a pivotal moment, a moment in your 10 days of the process that was memorable or magical or pivotal? I distinctly actually remember three. The first was the day before the process actually started and I had I had to take it in Austria because it didn't exist in Italy. And I arrived there and uh, everybody knew about me because my two brothers and my sister-in-law were um, the bosses of the Swiss Institute, Swiss Hoffman Institute. So I got there and my uh, teacher-to-be only touched my shoulder and I burst into tears. It was like, finally, I was allowed to cry. I didn't have to hold it all together. That was one. And even before the process started, uh, but of course I had done the pre-process work, so I guess (laughs) something had moved already. And then the second one was when uh, I addressed uh, vindictiveness. And I was truly shocked at the amount of sadism and nastiness I experienced in myself and how easy it was to come up and to be expressed. It was shocking. And it was not something that would be, you know, like nice little Lisa, not at all. No more of that perfect good girl. No, no, no. Nasty, nasty. Nice. You know, us Hoffman teachers, we like this. Well, this is, puts a smile on our face. <laughs> so I certainly gave myself into that. Uh, the um, the third moment that I remember distinctly was uh, on a day when we were playing and it was just a, a moment of magic and sheer joy. Uh, to me, that was an amazing gift because it actually was something that I had, I still had in my life, but kind of put it away, shoved it away, didn't connect to it too often. So these were the three moments that I can, or are the three moments that I can still remember really well. And I'm going to go back to all three of them. The the first one, you were allowed to cry. Wow. I really felt how this role of being the good girl or the perfect girl kind of trapped you in that and didn't allow you to have these feelings of crying or whatever it is that was coming up. Was this the opening? And from here on out, you were able to access your feelings and express them? 
It was certainly the first step and uh, then it took a bit of practicing and learning and acknowledging and making mistakes and then go back and then be afraid and then go back. And so um, it's, it was an opening and it has carried uh, me through life beautifully, even though, I mean, I still sometimes uh, have a hard time allowing tears to flow uh, immediately, but um, they flow when it's the right moment. And so, Lisa, about this moment, this magical moment, what was what was happening for you? Had you had a life where you didn't have a lot of these magical moments, where everything was planned and predictable? Why was that such a opening moment for you? Uh, it's a good question. No, actually, as a as a child, I was. Uh, very much drawn to living in a fantasy world, in in uh, fables and but things that I would make up. Uh, so the the magic moment was that I was imagining stuff that was just wonderful, and I felt free. And uh, it, it it's a bit of a default for me. I'm I'm an introvert, so I'm often in my own world. And as a child, I was very very much in my own world. I remember myself uh, sitting in my bedroom with a very comfortable kind of um, big uh, chair, uh, reading, 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 reading. Yeah, so that moment was just, it allowed me maybe to um, just freely open my mind to imagination, images, and and a flow. And so you're in this family, key people in your family have already taken the process. You're entering that 40-year-old moment where you're reassessing your life. You take the process. Now take me from you being a student in the Hoffman process to you deciding you want to be a teacher. <laughs> well, actually, uh, the the path started during the process because as I was uh, going on during the days through pain and joy and difficulties and fun, I thought, oh my goodness, this doesn't exist in Italy. Well, what about my friends, my family? They cannot take this. So I immediately saw myself bringing this work to Italy. No idea how, because I had successfully rebelled against anything that had to do with therapy or psychology or something like that. And I had gone into fashion. So I had no idea. But I have also... Uh, how can I say? Once I put my mind to something, I'm, I can, I am a trooper. I, <laughs> I go. <laughs> you make it happen. I often also make it happen. That's true. So I, I had the good fortune of meeting Bob Hoffman, and he and my brother Michael had already kind of said, "Well, your sister should really do this in Italy." That was Bob Hoffman. And I came to him with the same idea. So I was uh, immediately given the yes, go ahead. And then I had to figure out how to do it. I was very lucky at the very beginning to have people kind of believing in it, uh, giving me an article, publishing an interview with Bob Hoffman in the one and only New Age Psychology magazine in Italy at that time. Uh, so they then the, the group around uh, Claudio Naranjo 
who had done a lot of work with Bob Hoffman, had helped him create the process the way it is now. Uh, they came, and so the Italian Hoffman Institute started in 1990. And while I was trying to organize it, I thought, well, how do I do that? So I went to assist at a process in Switzerland where my sister-in-law was the boss because I needed to learn the logistics. How, how does one do that? The music, the workbook, the, the teaching guide, the, the materials. And I was like, on the first day, I was helping and I thought well th that doesn't feel right that's not enough how how can I organize and enroll people if I if I'm not really more involved and that's where I started immediately with the training to become a teacher yeah so if I'm hearing you correctly it was first a realization that you want to bring this work to Italy so that your friends, your family, your community can have access to it. And as you're learning to bring it, you're thinking, wait a minute, I need to become a teacher as well. Exactly. I trained in a very unorthodox way because these were pioneer times in Europe. The Hoffman process existed in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, as well as Spain, actually. But uh, Bob Hoffman was traveling around training teachers. So I, I went to Switzerland, to Germany, to Austria, to France, to, and to Italy <laughs> to train. And in fact, uh, the first process in Italy, um, I was both the boss of the institute and the teacher in training. Kind of hybrid role there. <laughs> wow. And so, so let's... Let's go drill down into this Bob Hoffman. You had, like you said, the good fortune of not just meeting him, of being trained by him, right? Uh, to a great dis uh, extent, not only by him, but uh, certainly his training was, as I said, unorthodox. Like when he was in a process, every single meal, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner was, okay, what did you learn today? And uh, it was stressful. It was amazingly long days. Like I remember the sessions going until two or three o'clock in the morning, people being exhausted, the teachers being exhausted, but it was so adrenalinic that we all held up. He, he often gave amazing teachings that were not from the book. He worked with intuition. He had a a capacity to connect to spirit, to whatever is out there, to find answers. So you are in the presence of somebody, uh, it, specifically Bob Hoffman, who had a life that he paid attention to his intuition. He listened to a calling, for lack of a better word, and gave us this thing that now lives on far beyond his life. I've never been in the presence of somebody like that. What 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 is it like to to know? I mean, can you tell me more of what that's like? I only know the name Bob Hoffman. I know the gift that was left behind. What's it like to be in the presence of somebody who listened to the call and left a legacy like this? Well, the legacy he left is absolutely wonderful. He as a person was difficult. 
because he never he had never taken the process. <laughs> His parents were all over. <laughs> but the one thing he never wanted to be, and really I, I so appreciate that about him, he never wanted to be a guru. He was not one who wanted to be prayed to or, or put on a pedestal. And that was important because he taught us that all we do is to bring something that helps people help themselves. And he was difficult, as I said. He was controversial. We would fight. And at the same time, I have never met anybody who, even when he was angry, you could feel the love he had for us, or for me in that case. Just amazing. Well, and I, and I think this is an important point. I, th I think being a person who, who follows a calling Let's not forget this was 50 years ago. Like you said, there was one new age self-help magazine, right? This was a totally different time. And I do feel like it's important to note that maybe you're not the most popular or the easiest to be with when, when you are one of these people who is going to leave this type of gift on this earth for the people way past the time that you're in your body. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even in his uh, sometimes difficult ways, the minute he would look at you and smile at you, it was like some kind of a, a soothing thing was happening. He was very, very, very unusual. And he taught us so many things that I still use nowadays when I teach or when I taught. And what an important message for us that sometimes people are unusual, but look at how much teaching, how much love, how much, look at the gifts that were left behind by you being able to listen to somebody who might've felt unusual. Yeah. And he was generous, generous with his presence, with his gifts. He loved giving gifts. He was generous with his teaching, his time and his support. And so how has this unorthodox training by this unusual man named Bob Hoffman, how has that stayed with you as the world around you has shifted and changed a lot in these last 50 years? How does that still live in you? I'm not sure I understand your question, Sharon. This connection to somebody who is interesting, like you say, he's unusual. He was controversial. But then when he looked at me, I felt loved. I felt his generosity. I felt his commitment. Does the fact that you had this experience with him, does this show up in, in your training and in your teaching, even though the world has changed around us? So do we have capacity for the same level of intensity that maybe Bob Hoffman brought to the work? I think it shifted. However, uh, what I remember always is exactly what you mentioned, uh, his, his being love, giving love with all his stuff. Huh? But when I, I remember very often, uh, I don't know whether he said it or whether we used to say it, but I remember that phrase, we will kill our students with love, which means we will just shower them with what is, and that's love. And so what I learned from him was that 
whenever I work with people, I see and connect to their spiritual self. I trust that they will connect themselves to their own spirit. And uh, the, the, his intuitive way of working, that, of course, I learned a lot of little tricks. And the main thing is really give what I can so that people learn how to help themselves and live in a fashion that is healthy or good for them or makes them happy or has them uh, relate to the world in a better way. And the world certainly needs that. Was there a shift from being the uh, logistics, the person who owned and ran the Italy to becoming a teacher? How did you manage both of those or did you switch to one or the other? I managed both of those uh, for about 10 years. I, I was, uh, first I was alone, then Michael joined me as a partner and after that also Daniela, his then wife. So it was the three of us. And I was teaching in Italy and abroad in France, in England, in uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. And then after about 10 years, something came up for me, which is actually interesting because it showed me that even when we create a vision for ourselves, my, my vision was to bring the process to Italy and to have as many people as possible do the process, that when we have a vision, we can shift. It's okay. It's not that that one vision has to be the right vision for the whole life. And what I noticed was that I started missing my cultural life, my intellectual life, the music, the art, the literature, because I was a bit sick and tired of only speaking psychology and spirituality. I was fortunate again. Uh, Michael and Daniela agreed to let me go and take over the institute by themselves. And that was around 2000. And so it allowed me to actually concentrate myself more on teaching internationally even more and on um, starting to connect with and take on, how can I say, another field of interest and another task, which was the uh, estate of my artist armed. And so you started focusing on that around 2000? Around 2000. Yes, actually, it started a little earlier. But I mean, I was I was working at the Hoffman Institute. And uh, so I did that in my free time. And so you came from a family who loved to talk about psychology, and you rebelled at one point, then you went back to that. And then after a, a moment, you were like, wait, there's still a part of me that that needs to be fulfilled. And so you uh, land in this moment in time where you get to play a role in your aunt's estate. Now, is your aunt uh, a key person in your life? What was your connection like with your aunt, your artist aunt? Well, as a child, it was uh, not much of a connection. She was this kind of whiff of special person coming in, famous and, and interesting and completely unconventional. Uh, because she didn't really enjoy children so much. Once we started thinking and <laughs> she started uh, to have conversations with us, then she was a fa fabulous aunt, really very supportive and a lot of fun. And then later, in, say, in my 30s, 
or 25, uh, as of about 25, she became, uh, I would say I had a really friendly relationship with her, very lovely and uh, as an adult. Is there a parallel with your own, like you said, the cultural life, your own love of music and art and fashion? Are you and her similar in that way? Um, Art, yes. Not so sure about music, even though when we were younger, she would come to rock concerts with us, actually. She would come with us. She would even smoke a joint with us. She was so cool. <laughs> so cool. And I, I do know that she enjoyed uh, once um, the meager years were over, that she enjoys buying nice clothes and uh, had, had quite a specific style. She was uh, very androgynous. She was um, very skinny. And she was... Uh, held herself in a beautiful posture of dignity. So she was wearing clothes really well. So yes, fashion, yes. Art, yes. Music to a certain extent. And literature, a lot. She was extremely cultured. And so what role do, do you play in the state? Is this something that you would have been drawn to naturally? In a way... Let's put it that way. My father, after my dad, uh, see, after my aunt died in 1985 at only 72, he took on a part of the estate along with uh, one of my cousins. And then when my dad got older, I kind of helped him a little bit. And then I got really interested. And I actually wanted to take on the whole uh, catalog of works. Uh, but that didn't work out because uh, some friends of hers were doing that. But I then thought, well, I've always liked the written word. Why don't I look at her writings? She was not only a um, visual artist, uh, she was a painter, a sculptor, object maker, a surrealist, uh, but she was also a poet. And her poems had been uh, collected and published. Uh, and so there were letters and thoughts and writings and uh, conversations on paper that I started to collect and then um, actually copy and decipher so that something could remain. And what happened to all the things that you copied and decipher? Are there books or where is it saved? Uh, on one hand, it's in my computer. <laughs> But that's relatively safe, as we well know. It started with basically her correspondence that where she, she was, uh, my aunt was kind of a control freak of her stuff. And she had uh, kept a lot of the correspondence, both mostly letters she had received, but also others that uh, she had uh, drafts of her own letters. So what I did is I looked for the people all over the world, and artists and journalists and art historians and friends who had written uh, to her, whether they had still her letters to them. And so I collected that. And in 2013, after about, I would say, a good 10 to 12 years of work, uh, I published part of the correspondence in a book. A uh, very big book that has had a lot of uh, good uh, echo. <laughs> wow, it took 10 to 12 years to collect all this information. 
Yes, and I mean, I think there's still more, and not everything is in that book, obviously, because it was thousands of documents, and it was fascinating. I loved doing it. It was difficult to decipher at times. It was learning so much about her world, but also about art history. I mean, this woman was friends with André Breton, Max Ernst, Jean Arp, uh, Dali, Man Ray, most amazing array of people. And they, you know, they would just kind of write to each other, like we now send emails or used to phone. How are you? Where, when are you coming back? Let me tell you this. Let me tell you that. So a little bit of gossip here and there. And so I got to dive into all that and learn a lot of stuff also about her as uh, you know as a person a rather intimate portrait do you think she knew that one day somebody would read this like was she writing it with the perspective of somebody's going to read this one day or or were you just getting into her private life she she might have thought that because actually she did kind of organize some of the letters friends family she had also a big envelope where she had put the love letters of some of these people so that on that on that big envelope it was written please do not publish before 20 years after my death and everyone else has died so then out came um the fact that she and Marcel Duchamp had had a relationship and no one had known about that and was it really opened 20 years after? Yeah, it was. A, yeah, absolutely. Maybe not 20, maybe 18, but certainly not published before. Yeah. Interesting. So it's, it's, a, it's another person who knew that was close to you or that is close to you in your orbit, who knew that, that they would have an impact long after they leave this earth. Yes, I... Uh, I think she knew that. And in a way, uh, from what I hear from a friend of hers, uh, I think she may have known that it would be me because apparently she told this person that among her uh, nieces and nephews, I was the one who probably would understand that most. And I believe that uh, one of her main values was independence. And I really think that she imprinted that in me uh, a lot. I was, I was just going to ask something uh, along that line, which is in reading all this stuff that is so personal and private from this person who is, a, is big in your life, what was your lesson? What was the gift that you got out of looking at all this written word and compiling it and deciphering it. What was your takeaway? Uh, I think I kind of slipped into the role of being a person of reference when it comes to the work of Meret Oppenheim. And, and uh, people connect to me when they want to have some information, when they plan an exhibition, when they need to find connections it opened that door and the personal gift in there for me is that, that not only did I learn about a different world than mine, because I am certainly not an artist, but also I got to meet absolutely wonderful people. And the gift in there was also when I asked for something 
can I publish these letters? Would you give me the permission? And they would say, oh, yes, of course, for merit, any time. And it was such a lovely thing. You know, I didn't have to to fight or so. The doors were just opening all the time. And again, I, I do see a parallel here. It's your aunt. I don't know this, but I get the sense that she was all love. You'd knock on these people's door and ask them to talk about her. And it seems like they were opening up the doors, opening their hearts. And of course, for her, I would do anything. What a loving presence. Yeah, I'm not so sure that I would say that, actually. Uh, she was an impressive presence. She was a, an excellent friend. She was really loyal. She was actually also fun, a good caretaker. But she was a bit, how can I say? She was not the warm and smiley and uh, huggy person. She was. She could be quite stiff, like like a board in a way. Because I think she was loyal, because she was a good friend, because she would also, uh, when she was younger, have uh, lovely parties and, and, you know, she was an artist after all, and a very unconventional one, and she couldn't care less about what people thought. That made her be respected and loved. Interesting. So when people would say, of course, anything for her, it came from a place of respect. Yes, and tenderness. I, I found a lot of tenderness. <laughs> Max Ernst once wrote about her as little Meret in a, in, a, in a very specific thing, an invitation for uh, an exhibition. And so that uh, Meret line, it's, uh, it's in German, uh, it's little Meret. They would say, ah, la petite Meret, the little Meret, uh, si, la piccola Meret, in all the languages where I connected to, it was the little Meret. And so there, there, there was that tenderness aspect because she certainly was not a little Meret. She was one hell of a person. <laughs> oh, I love that. So you are at a crossroads in that you're starting to hang up your Hoffman shoes. You, you already, as of 2000, are not running the it Italy Institute. You've been teaching all over the world, not just in Europe, but you're starting to hang those shoes as well. You've devoted decades towards people and helping them, not just in the Hoffman setting, but also in your outside of Hoffman world, it sounds like. What do you think is next for you? Mm, you have a, a magical glass above. <laughs> I, I don't have a way to look into the future. <laughs> Bottom line. <laughs> um, well, uh, the, the decision not to um, teach any more in-person processes, I, I got a bit of a kick in the butt with the pandemic. I couldn't. And then I thought, well, I have been doing this for 30, over 30 years. And uh, it's time to think about uh, of myself. I got married last year to my first boyfriend. <laughs> so wait, let's make sure we're clear on that. That's she's not saying it's her first ever boyfriend. She's saying they reconnected. Okay, this is an amazing story. Yes, yes, we reconnected and I got married. So I have, I have my husband, I have my almost 100-year-old mother, and I have my, my life. So I thought, 
it's probably time. Also, it's time because, thank goodness, uh, Hoffman is thriving. The American Institute, for which I was actually exclusively teaching in the last few years, is growing. Teach, new teachers are coming. It feels okay. And it's not an easy decision. It's like, who am I when I'm not a Hoffman teacher? It's part of my life. It's part of my uh, work DNA. It's the place where I feel most comfortable in, uh, where I uh, feel I am giving something, both teaching, but also then receiving something from the students and the participants. I love this work. Well, you're very talented at it. Every time I teach with you virtually in person, my, my jaw often drops at how good you are. And that doesn't mean you have to keep doing it, of course. But, you know, I, I think this goes back to something that you said earlier, which is we can create a vision for our lives and it can shift. And you've had one of those shifts and it shifted in a beautiful way. And you're in another moment where that vision is shifting. Yeah. It is. And uh, if, if, I, if I live what I teach, then I take this one also with grace, uh, uh, both the fact that I can still shift, the fact that I can still contribute uh, by teaching virtually, the fact that I can take care of myself, that I can follow my wishes. I'm glad that I have my spirit to rely on. And that has been my, the biggest gift of the whole Hoffman process from when I took it and all through the years. Louisa, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing and uh, modeling for us uh, um, decades worth of following your spirit and modeling for us following your spirit, even in unknown times and crossroads like the one that you're in. So thank you so much. Aww. No, oh, thank you, Sharon. I just love being with you. Can we can can we continue like another two hours? Oh yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Sharon. <laughs> I love you too, Lisa. As usual, thank you so much for being one of our guests. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.